we come to the scripture, I ask that you would uh, graciously bless uh, this word uh, among us. Uh, We know that we have uh, been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, and this through the living and abiding word of God. And so knowing the power of your word to bring and sustain life, I ask that you would do that, even as we listen, even as we think, and most certainly as you enable us to believe this, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Turn please to 1 Peter, 1 Peter, and chapter 1, I want to read verses 1 through 12. 1 Peter in chapter 1, please. Uh, This is the word of the Lord. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, But you, in the things that have now been announced to you, though those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now, we want, if God will help me, to take up this epistle of Peter in these weeks. And I'm doing that for a number of reasons. One, of course, because it's in the Bible. And so it's worthy to be taken out for us. And secondly, because in these Sundays between what the church has historically referred as Resurrection Day or Easter Sunday and Ascension Day and then on to Pentecost, and those, those weeks after Easter, uh, historically, uh, the church has read uh, from, from the Gospels and from Acts. And when reading from the Gospels and Acts, 
They're generally passages like we read earlier this morning. We read one from Acts chapter 2, which spoke of the fact of the resurrection of Jesus. And then we read from John about uh, Jesus appearing. And so when we read through the Acts and the Gospels at this time of year, it's, it's to, to, to reflect upon the appearance of, of Jesus after his crucifixion and the fact that he was raised from the dead. And then, in reading from various letters of the New Testament, there are various ones that are traditionally read, First Peter being one of them. Um, and, and, and it's because, obviously we could go anywhere really and find references to the resurrection of Jesus in the New Testament, but, but Peter anchors so much of what he writes in his first epistle here uh, on and in the resurrection of Jesus. You might remember that Peter never wanted Jesus to die. There was a time when Jesus came to his disciples and he said, who do people say that I am? And they, they gave various answers to that. And then finally it was Peter, you remember, uh, spurned on by the Spirit of God who said that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And all that was well. And then Jesus went on to say that he was going to Jerusalem to suffer and to die. And Peter said, no, you're not. Remember. And then Jesus' response, get behind me, Satan. And then you remember when Judas came uh, with those who were going to arrest Jesus, uh, Peter thought he'd take matters into his own hand and defend Jesus until he took a sword and he cut off one of the soldier's ear. Jesus trumped him by putting it back on. But you see this reluctance of Peter to have Jesus die, to really understand all of that. But then you remember the great and deep sorrow and sadness of Peter when Jesus was going through this time of trial and crucifixion, and he denied even knowing Jesus. But there's a great, sweet um, expression at the tomb of Jesus by the angel. You might remember it's in Mark's gospel. And the women came, remember, to, 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 to minister to the body of Jesus, and they found the tomb empty, and the angel was there. And, and in announcing the resurrection of Jesus to these women, uh, the angel said, go tell the disciples and Peter. Don't you know then that when that report came to Peter, changed everything i mean not only was jesus risen i mean that was the big deal like that was 99.9 percent .9 of the way there but the very fact of this special make sure peter knows because remember peter he he didn't want me to die and he he, he would never believe this <laughs> but tell him i've risen and so you get this great sense of this anchor, if you will, for Peter, the resurrection of Jesus. And of course, it's more than just an anchor for Peter. It is the anchor of, of, of the whole gospel, and that is that Jesus has indeed risen from the dead. So it's, it's, it's no surprise that in the history of the church that after the resurrection of Jesus, after Easter Sunday and before Jesus' ascension and before uh, uh, Pentecost, if you will, and those, those, those celebrations in the life of the church as we work through this time of the life of Jesus, uh, it's no surprise that First Peter is one of the epistles often read, and thus we'll take it up. So that's my my reason for picking this up right now. We probably won't go through this as I normally do, um, which is line by line, verse by verse, because this will take us till next Easter. 
but we'll take up various themes, I think. We'll see how it, how it really goes. I'm already a week behind because I wasn't here last week to take it up uh, right after Easter, so we'll see how we, uh, how we progress. But if anybody wants the line-by-line line version, I think I preached through this about 15 years ago, and so I'm sure you can find it somewhere uh, in space. Uh, so you can, you can take a look at that. But this whole notion, of course, of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, the question that comes from this text is a very simple one. And, and the question is simply this. Do we? And I, I trust you're thinking, do we what? But, but notice how Peter puts it in verse 6. He says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 6. In this you rejoice. So that's the question. Do we? Do we rejoice in this? Because you see, if we don't rejoice in this, then nothing that God speaks to us through this epistle will help us. This is the very beginning of it all. If we rejoice in this, then we'll get it. If we rejoice in this, then all that God is saying to us in the context of this particular epistle will apply, will will we'll strengthen us, will help us. And so the question is, what is the this in which we're to rejoice? Well, we're to rejoice, verse 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. The question is, do we rejoice in the fact that through the resurrection of Jesus, which came about because of the mercy of God, we've been, by God, caused to be born again. And this being born again is born again to a hope, a hope that is living, that is, it's active, that is, that is it's alive in us, it's rising us up in us, if you will. Do we rejoice in the fact that we've been born again to this living hope and we have kept for us in heaven, that is in the presence of God. You need to think of heaven so much as a place at this point, but where God is, heaven, it is a place, but, whether, but you speak of it in the context of where God is, He's, it's kept in him for us and nothing can destroy that inheritance. Do we rejoice in in that. Because you see, if we do, then he's saying that simultaneous, that is alongside with rejoicing this joy that we have, we can even experience suffering. And even as we experience suffering, we can indeed rejoice. Notice Peter puts himself in this package. This isn't just something that he's speaking to this particular church. He's saying, he's saying he's caused us caused you. He could have said that. I mean, it would have been fine to say that as a writer of a letter. Uh, he could have said caused you. That would have been fine. But, but the very fact that he says caused us, you, you get the sense that he's identifying very closely with all these people to whom he writes, caused us. And you can see this is in the language of worship. The, he begins by saying blessed, or blessed as we usually say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, and when we, that word blessed shows up in this context. Uh, it means to praise. To bless means to speak well about. And so when we praise the Lord, when, when the psalmist writes, bless the Lord, O my soul, he's speaking to his soul. 
And he's saying to his soul, his guts, he's saying to his soul, I want you to speak well of God, which means to praise and bless the Lord, O oh my soul. So those, that blessing to God contains words. And, and so we sing those words in songs of praise and hymns of praise and, and, and so forth. And so this is Peter's way. He says, he says I'm worshiping now. What this, knowing what Christ has done, uh, means that, that I worship. That's my way of reflecting this time of this rejoicing, uh, even in the midst uh, of suffering. And, and notice, when he says to the church, in this you rejoice, verse 6, he's not commanding them to rejoice. No, he could. You could go to various passages in Scripture and find a command to rejoice. Rejoice always. Rejoice in the Lord. There's a commands. But he's saying, this is just true. This is a statement of fact. He's saying, this is true. You believe it. Thus, you rejoice. In other words, if someone would have come to Peter and said, no, I don't rejoice, he would have said, you haven't gotten it. You don't understand something. There's something wrong here. Because you see, this is to be a natural, if you will, supernatural, but a natural outflow of that which you believe, that which is true, that which has really happened to you. This is something you believe, yes, but this is something that's happened to you. You've been born again to a living hope. So so he says this is just sort of a, a natural kind of a natural kind of thing. And, and and I read out of the English Standard Version, I like it as you know. But uh, but uh, the NIV captures a, a nuance in this you greatly rejoice, they put it. That's that's really right. I mean it's really this sense of it's a great and, and also it's difficult, but it's it's difficult to really reflect in English, but but it means you're always rejoicing. This is a, a great rejoicing and you're always rejoicing, which is a remarkable expression because Peter knows that this church is suffering. And the potential for them is to suffer in the future. Uh, depending on exactly when we might date this letter it's likely that they're going to experience more suffering than they have been experiencing. And so, Peter's prophetically, I don't know, but somehow even anticipating that. Or maybe it's just sort of something they just so expected that they would always write about it. But, but, but they're, probably the church is going to be experiencing more suffering than they even are at the moment when Peter writes, writes this. But notice how he, how he puts it in the very beginning of the letter. He says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in various places. Now, I, oh, I haven't time. Dispersion is a, is a technical term. And it was used really of the Israelites when they were in exile in Babylonia. Right? They were the dispersed ones the dispersed people of God. And so they really were strangers and aliens in that place. And you remember the various instructions from the prophets uh, saying, you know, live here, build houses, you know, bless the people around you because this is where you are. And so, and so when Peter grabs a hold of this expression, the dispersion, he's writing not probably to Jewish Christians, but to Gentile Christians who simply are all over the place. They, didn't, they weren't forced to be there. They just became Christians in those places. And in those places, he's saying to them very much, I get it, I understand that you, you're, you're in exile in some sense. And that sense in which you look around and you realize that, that, that heaven has come to me in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. The kingdom has come to me. The kingdom of God has come to me in Jesus. 
and I live in this world, and I don't yet see everything yielded to Christ. And so I'm an exile. I'm yielded to Christ, and yet not, every, not everything else is, is yielded to Christ. And so I'm feeling like an, an exile, like an alien. It's like the world speaks with an accent, you know? And it's different than mine, right? And, and the world's food smells different. It, it's different than mine. And the world dresses, to, I feel like an alien in this place, and that's just the way that it is. And he says, now I want you to rejoice in the midst of that because of what you know. And he says, all kinds of trials will come. And we know that all kinds of trials come. I don't have to probably list these for you. You just think about your life, and you know the trials that exist, the fears, the, expect, the, the, the expectations that aren't met, the difficulties in relationship, disease and trouble, uncertainty. I can't you know, flip on the television or whatever it is that you look at. And weather even is driving us crazy all the time. I don't know if you can fly from one place to another because of, because of weather and flooding and mudslides and all kinds of things. I mean, let's face it, the world in which we live is uncertain and can be scary and frightful and all of that. There's grief and poverty and injustice and war and hatred and all that sort of thing. We know that various trials that it simply exist because we're aliens and the fullness of what the kingdom will bring has yet to come. And so there's difficulties. He says you're going through all kinds of troubles, necessary ones. That's simply the way it is. But then there's some particular ones to them. He writes in chapter 2 about slaves who are, uh, who are subject to unjust masters. And even though they're, they're doing what they're supposed to do, and even though they're living righteously, they're still being treated unjustly, and they're suffering for doing good. He writes to wives in, in chapter 3, who find themselves married to unbelievers. And the husband in this passage in chapter 3 seems like a good guy. He doesn't necessarily seem like a difficult guy. He's just not a believer. And so he's instructing a wife, I know this is hard for you. Some of you know this experience. And so I know this is difficult for you. Here's how you have to live in that kind of alien feeling situation where you can't share the very deepest of your life with one who is to be the companion in the deepest of your life. And so I know that's like living like an alien. And so here's how you have to to, to live and lay that out. And then and, and he, he speaks to them in chapter 13. More generally, he said, the very truth of the matter is that it's likely that you can suffer for doing righteousness, for following after Christ. If you simply live and follow after him, uh, there's a likelihood that people will come against you. And they were experiencing that. And then he gets, his, descript, his language gets more descriptive even in chapter 4. And he says, verse 12, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Now, whether that was kind of an allusion to something literal that was happening, people being burned, or whether he was saying, as he picked up from some language in chapter 1, about trials refining your faith. You know, so they're fiery trials, they refine your faith. However that is, I never like the word fiery in a sentence when it's used about my life, right? You just, okay, there's, I don't like the feel the fire of it, the pain of it, the burn of it, the suffering of it. And so anyway, that's the sense of it here. And, and yet still he has the audacity to write to them that in this you rejoice as, as if it, it was just a, just a common thought to him. It just sort of flew out of, of course you rejoice in this. Now, Peter isn't. 
making light of their circumstance. Remember, this is an us thing. Peter knew suffering himself. He knew that Jesus had told him that a day would come when he would, he would not be free, that he would be bound, and that his arms would be spread out, and that he would die. So Peter had all that in his head all the time. You know, generally our mentors tell us how bright our future will be. <laughs> and so we have that in our mind. When things get tough, we go, yes, but my mentor said I'll be successful and all will go well. And Jesus had told Peter, well, here's how it's going to go for you. So he always had that in his mind. So you can tell when Peter writes about suffering, even though he may not be experiencing it at the moment, he knows the day will come. He knows what his future holds. He knows what that's going to be like. You get a sense that he's even prepping himself as he writes this. He's even saying, this is how I think about the course of my life. This is how I think about my life. I'm not unsympathetic to you. I understand what's taking place and what will take place. And you understand my life as well. And, and so... This is how I think about it. He isn't saying uh, just hide your head in the sand. He isn't saying ignore your difficulties. He's saying this is how you must face them. This is how much you must look at your difficulties. You know, Peter wasn't one, I don't think, who would have been running around singing, forget your troubles, come on, get happy, uh, you know, chase all your cares away, shout hallelujah, come on, get happy, we're waiting for the judgment day. Now, some of you young people have no clue about that song. Although you think it's a praise song from the 70s. Uh, but it's, it's not. But it could have been, probably. But anyway, you know, he wasn't saying that. And he wasn't saying that this is, I'm talking about being happy. Happy is good, but happy is circumstantial. Right? He's talking about real joy. He's talking about something deep within. He's talking about a contentment, a peace, a calm. Something that knows Something that at the moment you're not seeing, but you know is true. And that sustains and, and keeps. Job, the scripture says, didn't sin. But he felt the pain of it. Jesus went to the cross for the joy that was set before him. But when he went, he didn't go with a smile on his face. It isn't that. But he says, simultaneous with your suffering is a sense of joy, really, because of what you know. And what he knew was this, that he had experienced the mercy of God. Now, mercy is an aspect, if you will, of love. We can't hardly talk about love without talking about mercy. It's, it's an aspect of grace. You can't hardly talk about grace, unmerited favor, without talking about mercy. And so in the big category of love that is thinking the best of another, doing the best for another, desiring the best for another, all of that love, you see, you can't not think of mercy. You think of grace, that is God's free gift. It isn't what we deserve, but, but rather the opposite of what we deserve. There's mercy in the midst of that. And for me, and please, this is not technical, this is just personal, mercy sweetens it all. It's compassion. It's, 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 it's God looking at us and seeing us in our difficulty and seeing us in the misery that the world exhibits and seeing us in the misery of our own sinfulness and having compassion upon us. And mercy says, I cannot not help you. That's the sense of mercy. And so Peter says, of course. 
according to or consistent with or flowing from this heart of God. Mercy. You know, mercy, it's really mercy. And it's the mercy of God. It's the sovereign mercy of God. You might remember that when the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Rome, he talks about the mercy of God. And he talks about it some part in ways that sort of make us shiver. But, but, but if we can grab the guts of this, it's really helpful. Uh, Romans 9, verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now I think about that, and, and, and I think, God, what are you saying here? And I don't know what he's saying about the people he doesn't have mercy on, but the people he does have mercy on, what he's saying is, you can trust this. You can't manipulate me. It's sovereign. This comes from my character to you. So if you receive the mercy of God, you can say, this is pure purely from the very character of God. He loves me. He's been compassionate towards me. He's seen my need. This isn't just a general thing. This isn't an objective thing only. This is, this is really in the heart of God in that sense, subjective. He sees the need and he loves in such a degree that he cannot not help. And so he comes and helps and brings help to us. And notice the help that he brings. Notice how Peter puts it. And this is a very good, I think, translation. He said, he has caused us to be born again. And one of the wonderful um, things about this metaphor, this use of the expression to be born again, you, you know the origin of it. You know from John chapter 3, this teacher of the law comes to Jesus named Nicodemus and he said, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus talks to him about being born and Nicodemus gets confused and he thinks he's talking about a physical birth and Jesus says, no, 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 I'm talking about a spiritual birth, uh, being born by the spirit, born from above, uh, born again, this new life. He says, the problem, and Jesus doesn't spell it out quite like this, but the epistles do as, as the apostles come to, to kind of build the case here. And he says, we're dead in our trespasses, so we're dead, so we need new life. Thus, we need to be born spiritually, if you will, reborn. Now, you know that none of us can give birth to ourselves. If you've been born, it means need to go into detail here, that someone else has been involved in this process, and you were passive, right? That's why I always thought, you know, why do we give presents to the one who was born? We should give presents to the mom, right, and the dad. I mean, they, whew, you just happened to be born, you know, and so here you are, you get a present. That's grace. Um, and that's, that's, the, that's the thing, and that drives us crazy, because we want to say we did something in order to get born again. We believed or whatever, and we want to say we did something, but the Bible doesn't put it that way. In fact, the Bible can't be consistent with itself in its expressions and put it like that. If you, if you talk about this birthing thing, you've got to realize somebody else did that. 
And so when Peter writes this, he's able to say, and this is the way that ESV puts it, and I think well, it caused us to be born. And it doesn't relate the cause to our faith, as say you believed, thus you were born, therefore you were born. It, it, it ties this birth to the mercy of God. And so if you have this life in you, then it's because of the mercy, the compassion, the goodness, the grace, the love of God, you see. And so he says he's caused us to be born again into this, this living hope. And this hope's alive. Now, hope, as we've said so many times, is the expectation that something good will come. The expectation that something good will come. Last night, I had a delightful time. I went to, I don't usually do things on Saturday nights, but I, I went to a sacrifice, and I went to a baseball game last night. I went to the Royals game last night. Now, my hope was that they would win. My expectation wasn't quite that. My expectation was satisfied, but my hope wasn't. But, but, uh, but, but, but we may expect something bad, but we never hope for something bad, right? We're always hoping for something good. That's the sense of it. So anytime we have hope, it means there's something good that we're expecting to come. So he says, you've been born again because of this work of God in you by his mercy. You've been born again to this hope that's alive, that's fueling you all the time. And it's because of the resurrection of Jesus uh, from the dead, you see. Uh, because when Jesus rose from the dead, those to whom the mercy of God was being shown rose with him. The great old spiritual. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Now, in one sense, I say, no, you know, that happened a long time ago. In another sense, as a believer, I have to say, yes, I was in Christ. You know, Paul puts it to the church in Galatia. I've been crucified with Christ. But nevertheless, I live. Really? How that happened? Well, it happened because when he died, I died. When he rose, I rose. Romans chapter 6. And I rose with him to this newness of life. Thus, the apostle John could say, I've passed, past tense, I've passed from death to life, something really has happened. Again, the age to come has come. When we get to Pentecost, we'll talk about that even more deeply. But the age to come has come in Jesus and in me because I'm in him. And so I have this living hope, you see, that that which is promised and I have this down payment, you see. Jesus is the first fruit of all that which is to come. He's the first of the new age. And we see him and we say, yes, this is going to happen and even happen to me. And so, so this hope, you see, that we have that comes deep from the mercy of God. He says, I, I, I have this inheritance, something that is to come. And it's certain. How else could you say it more certainly than it's an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And it's kept in heaven that is in the very presence of God. God keeps it for us. And he says, so if you believe this, if you know this, this will, this will be the perspective of your whole life. 
So Peter's saying, I want you to think about everything through the resurrection of Jesus. Since he died and since he rose, then all this is true. And when he died and when he rose, Jesus simply wasn't achieving a potential salvation for all. He was actually saving. That's why the sermon's getting way deeper than I anticipated. That's why the Bible speaks of the death of Jesus as a propitiation. You know what that word means, propitiation. It means to extinguish or to satisfy the justice, the wrath of God. Now, when that happens, when, when something is propitiated, it means there's no longer any case against you. So you see what happened? When Jesus died, he died for the sins, all the sins of those the Father had given him. That's why Peter refers to this group of people as elect exiles. None of Jesus' blood is wasted. His intention was to die for the, those the Father had given him, and he did. His intention was to, do, to die for those who would believe in him, which were all the ones the fathers had given him, and so he did. And so when he died, you see, as a believer in Christ, you can know that your sins were dealt with thoroughly and completely, propitiated. Because if he propitiated all the sins of all people, what would happen? Everyone would be saved. Write that down. Think about it for the next 20 years. Get back to me. Right? But, but, but really, know that. It's mysterious could drive us mad but it should drive us to joy to think yes it is really done it really is accomplished he really did do it he propitiated when he died for my sins they're dealt with and therefore the inheritance is secure as he puts it in chapter 5 there's a crown of glory that would be given to us I don't know what that means I know it's better than a car, right? A crown of glory, he says, and that's secure. He made a promise to Abraham that there'd be land, and so there's the new heavens and the new earth, and that's all going to be for his people. The meek shall inherit the earth. I don't know what that means either. I don't know what that would look like other than the fact that he puts it, there'll be no more tears, there'll be no more poverty, there'll be no more injustice, there'll be no more hatred, there'll be no more war. Everything will reflect the glory of Jesus, even us. Because when we see him, we'll be made like him and we'll see him as he is and be made like him. And so everything will reflect Jesus. And so what's ever true of him will be true on this new earth. And again, that's better than anything we could ever imagine. He said, that's kept in heaven. But then my question is because I'm, such the person that I am. I have to ask this question. Well, if it's kept in heaven for me, what if I stop believing? And he said, no, it's guarded. How's he put it? Let me get it right here. He says, so that um, it's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. So what that, what's that mean? It means he's going to guard my faith. He will guard my faith. If it's being guarded, kept through faith. Now, you know, guards are helpful in two ways. 
So if you post a guard, right, what's that guard do? Well, he can keep somebody, an enemy, from getting in, or he can keep the person in from getting out. I need both of those. So when my faith is being guarded, what's happening? He's guarding the enemy from getting in in such a way that my faith will be destroyed by the enemy. But he's also guarding me from getting out so that it's really secure. I don't know about you, but when I listen to the parable of the sower being read, it scares me. Yeah, I, I know I'm not the first one because you know the the, the seed went out on the on, on the on the on the rocky play or on the on the, on, the, on the side of the road and got eaten up and all of that. So I, I know I'm not that guy because because I believe today. But then you know there's those in betweeners. You know, came up and then and difficulties came. And there's the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. I live in the world. Wouldn't mind being rich. And so, I wonder about that. And then there's the one that, that grows, and I say, well, I, that, I, how do I know that's the one? That's the one because he'll guard me. He'll guard me and guard my faith. Don't you know, Peter knew that. Don't you know, there were times, I have to believe, there were times in the life of Peter that he would reflect back upon having been with Jesus. I mean, let's face it, the apostles lived an odd life. I mean, they, in time of history, I mean, there was a time in history that's, that's, that every time in history is somewhat unique, I suppose, but, but that time, the very Son of God walked the earth. And these guys walked around with him. And, and I can't help but believe that, that they weren't really interesting at a party. You know? When they walked in, you go, wow, i got to talk to this guy. And, and, and you can't help but believe that Peter wouldn't have reflected back upon the things that Jesus had said. And I suppose of, of all the things, one chilling one may have been when Jesus said to Peter, Satan has asked, to sift you like wheat. But then the expression of Jesus after that. But I've prayed for you. So your faith will not fail. Yeah. You know Jesus is praying for us. Even now when he prayed his high priestly prayer before the crucifixion. He prayed. He said Father thank you for keeping them. Now keep them. And he prays that even as he intercedes for us. And he intercedes for us because he's risen. And his being risen is a manifestation of the mercy of God. And because of that, we have hope. One of my favorite praise songs comes from Sesame Street. That might be irreverent to say Sesame Street in front of the communion table. I won't sing the song, but you, I've used this before. You, you know this. There was a great scene. They're trying to teach the kids perspective. And so... so so they have this airplane that is flying through, and, and when it gets very close, the houses and the cars get very big. And then when it flies off, the houses and the cars get very small. Now, we know the houses and the cars stay the same size, but it's a matter of perspective. And so the chorus of the song is, 
That's about the size. It's where you put your eyes. That's about the size of it. Peter says, put your eyes on the resurrection of Jesus. See everything through that. And you'll see the mercy of God. And you'll see that even your sufferings will become sweet. Because you'll see that even in the midst of suffering, he is at work by his mercy to guard your faith. Because the suffering is like fire upon gold. It doesn't destroy the gold, but it takes away everything that distracts from the gold. And at the end of the day, that's what you'll see. You'll be filled with joy. Because according to his mercy, he's given us, caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Our eyes. The night that Jesus was betrayed took bread and after giving thanks he broke it put your eyes on it this is my body by the mercy of God given for you same way we realize he took the cup and again after giving thanks this too he gave to his disciples and he said This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. This do in remembrance of me, that is, take your mind's eye and see this cup. This is the mercy of God. My blood for you to secure everything. The forgiveness of sins that you might be caused to be born again. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for me, for us, that you would kindly, graciously, mercifully fix my, our eyes upon you. I pray that you would take this bread and this Juice, and you would set it apart in such a way that we would know that we're in the very presence of this one who has risen, that he is as close to us as this bread and this juice is. We're so united to him that even as we take this food into us, we would know that he is in us and we are in him. And that's a lock. That we're guarded. And so we can know that no matter what our circumstance, any difficulty, even suffering, if you will, that even still in the midst of that, we have great, certain, imperishable, undefiled hope. Work that in us, Father, deeply. May we live as if it's true because it is. 
and greatly rejoice in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you this table is not the table of Grace Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord. He invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in the sight of God without hope except in his sovereign mercy. And all those who receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel as the savior of sinners. And all those who know that by his mercy has caused you to be born again into this living hope through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. You know that. I invite you to come. These two sections come down this aisle to my left, these two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup. And as you do, just allow to go off in your head. Blessed be the God and Father of my Lord Jesus Christ. Please come.